What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we'd like to say thank you to all of our amazing patrons and all of our Academy members who make this show possible. We are very delighted to have you all. And thank you this week. We've had Rachel Funnel sign up to become an patron and if you would like to join Rachel I was thinking about what we should do as we're moving into August actually by the time this comes out it will be August it's happy summer to everyone out there uh, obviously on the western hemisphere and happy skiing to everyone in New Zealand and Australia and the other <laughs> side of the world but if you would like to become a patron over the next month we have we are starting something called Fabulous 50. We would like 50 new patrons this month, folks. So if you would like to join the merry band of people, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you think, you know what, I really enjoy this. I want to contribute towards, you know, the running cost of the podcast, become one of our Fabulous 50 and we will give you a shout out. And if you've got a book coming out or if you've had a book out, we'll also mention your book as well on the podcast over the next couple of months. So pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support uh, to join the Fabulous 50 in August. So Mr. Stay, it's it's hot and sticky and humid in Canada. I know you've had this in England, uh, but man, it is absolutely baking today. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's moist in all the wrong places and all the worst ways. But fret not, people, because we have a huge announcement to make. We've got some really, really cool news. Uh, for those of you keeping count, you may have seen that we are edging towards a significant number uh, in, in our episodes. We're coming up to episode 400. Can you believe that, Mr. Oh, Can you believe that? Four freaking hundred episodes. <laughs> How did that happen? Blink. I don't know. Whoosh. One episode uh, at a time, so, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you eat the elephant one episode at a time? Um, so to celebrate 400 episodes, although, although to be honest, because of the way it's all falling, it might be 401 episodes. But we'll gloss over that. We'll gloss over that. To celebrate 400 episodes, we are going to be having a special live edition of the podcast at Waterstones in Canterbury. So you can join me and we've got a panel of amazing writers, including Rowan Coleman, Penilla Hughes, Nadine Matheson and Julie Wasmer. And uh, over, so after six, nearly six years, 400 episodes, we're going to be asking if writing is it a job for life? In these uncertain times, can an author really earn a living from just their writing? So our authors share their experiences. So Rowan and Julie, they've been doing this for many, many years now. They, they've managed to forge a career. Penilla and Nadine, they're on, they're on second and third books of their career. They'll be looking ahead to the future. They'll be giving us their perspective. And this is is a celebration. There's going to be wine. There's going to be a cake. You're going to have a chance to meet the authors. You can get your book signed. You can meet me if that's something. And we're hoping now, Mr. D. I want um, to meet you, Mark. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't realise that we do this on opposite sides of the world. And we've actually only met yeah, a couple of times yeah. in person, haven't we? I mean, obviously, since we knew yeah, each other as kids. Well, but yeah, yeah I yeah, might yeah, have to yeah. pop over. <laughs> but we are, well... Don't make promises you can't no, keep. I won't, I won't, but I won't, we, I won't, we are we're going to hopefully we're going to look at the technology and see if we can beam Mister D in uh, via the miracle of the internet. Do you know what? So, I think uh, it's so worth standby for that. It's as well. worth showing up just to see if that actually technologically can happen. I think it'd be absolutely hilarious. Mm. And 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 for everyone out there, this is also a celebration of you as well. I mean, for every single listener who's who started with us in episode one, or maybe discovers us on episode 400 and goes, what's all this about? What are, they, what are they doing drinking wine in a bookshop? But we would like to celebrate you <laughs> as authors. So if you've, if you've had any, if the, if the podcast has any, any impact on you over the years, um, please, please see, see if you can make it in person. But if not, if not, you know, join us 
because uh, I believe, Mark, it's going to be streamed online. Is that correct? Uh, yes, if the technological gods are, are, are in our favour. Yes, so it's Wednesday, 31st of August at 6.30, Waterstones, Canterbury, in the flesh. Uh, but there should be an online element to it as well. So, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, so, it, 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 you know, it's um, it, if you can make it in person, that's amazing. If you can't, join us online. But tell everyone, tell everyone you know that this is happening because if it's just me and the authors and the uh, bookshop manager and his dog, it's going to be very embarrassing. So we need to fill this room <laughs> up people and do you know what uh 6 30 that's uk time so that's yes. 10 30 a.m if you're on the west coast of the us or canada that's oh, here we go let me work this one out 1 30 <laughs> if you're on est time and you're if you're in if you're europe we're talking about what it's an hour later isn't it so it's 7 30 in the evening and then if you're in australia and New Zealand, this is always the one that catches me out it's quite, yeah, it's not sorry, actually, too, it's not too early in the morning. It's not too, I had somebody, Mark, show up to the academy training, the life coaching the other day from New Zealand. Um, and it was Me an too. early, yes. uh, yeah, early morning start. Yeah. Bright as a button, absolutely brilliant. So you mm. know what, um, for people out in Australia, New Zealand, this could be the opportunity for you to start that early morning writing habit. So get up for the podcast, enjoy and join us and then be inspired to write for that day. As always, there will be a link in the show notes with all the details. Click on the link. It's all there. Um, but like I say, this is going to be really, really great fun. And I can't wait to meet you either in person or virtually. I know. It's a, it's a, it's a quite an incredible thing. And actually, this idea of writing... You know, we always talk, we, we talked about on the, the training, actually, the life coaching on Monday about, you know, really, when you think about it, writing a book is just one word at a time. In fact, it's one letter at a time if you break it down. And and we never really decided to make this podcast. Or we never really thought of this podcast as being a, a long running, you know, six year, 400 episode plus um, venture. But what's mm -hmm. incredible is literally you just keep you keep showing up each week and it's like writing. You just show up every day yeah. and those books will happen <laughs> as if by magic, as yeah. if by magic. But anyway, mm. it's been such a blast. And yeah, so do join <laughs> us. Also, for anyone who's interested in joining the Bestseller Academy, if you're thinking about early September, kids going back to school maybe, or you're thinking about or beginning of the academic year, that'd be a great time to kind of refocus. Uh, the academy doors are going to be opening at the beginning of September. That means you can get on the wait list now and you can get applications in towards uh, the mid to end of August. So if you're interested, I really, really strongly encourage you to get over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and just get your name on the wait list so that you can get the information when it's released. Now, Mr. Stay, we have a fantastic fantastic interview today another incredible massive best-selling author yes just a bit uh, lisa reagan is the usa today and wall street journal best-selling author of the detective josie quinn series as well as a bunch of whole other titles as well the first one of them vanishing girls came out in 2018 okay but when i interviewed her for this uh we were up to book 14 so just think, so 2018 to 2022, 14 books. Now, when we interviewed this, I interviewed uh, Lisa earlier in the year, and this is now coming out in August. Actually, the next book is coming out in August. So we, we, we're talking about book 14, uh, which is Watch Her Disappear. But book 15 is about to come out called Local Girl Missing. So bear that in mind <laughs> when you hear me talking to Lisa. To say she's prolific is, is something of an understatement, but she is just amazing. So we, we discuss how to keep track of a series, her close relationship with the readers and why you should never underestimate the reader and much more. Absolutely brilliant. Let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting to the absolutely lovely Lisa Reagan. Lisa Reagan, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm spectacular. Thank you for asking. Uh, we're here to celebrate the launch of your new book, Watch Her Disappear, which is the 14th in the Detective Josie Quinn series. Uh, tell us about this incredible series and Josie Quinn's latest adventure. Well, the series is about a female detective who uh, works at a small city police department in central Pennsylvania in the United States. And Josie started out in Vanishing Girls, which is book one, as being uh, sort of very flawed and damaged. She had a little alcohol problem, some anger management issues. Um, but to balance that out, she's 
very, very concerned with justice and protecting vulnerable citizens. And so um, she will do anything to do her job and and do it correctly, Um, even if it means uh, she will pay some prices personally. And over the course of the series, she's with each case, she grows a little bit personally. She's become she's now in book 14. She's given up drinking. Uh, She's learned to kind of let other people help her. And uh, she's made a, a lot of important relationships among the other series, regular characters. So with each book, she she grows a little bit and um, she is kind of plunged into uh, a different um, hellish case with each book. And in Watch Her Disappear, the opening is that at a prom, a prom goer, a female prom goer is found on the school property murdered. And so Josie and her team have to figure out who she is. And then it turns out that she was not even at the prom. So then the next thing they have to figure out is, well, if she, why is she dressed in a prom dress with her hair and makeup done? And she's on the property, but she never actually went to the prom. And then it goes from there. And as we as she works her way through the case, we find out that uh, her chief who's been in the series since book four, um, but we don't know anything about him. She finds out that he has a connection to this murder. And so then it's her job to delve into his past and try to connect the two in order to find the killer. So readers who have been waiting to find out what the chief's backstory is, uh, we're very, very happy uh, to read this book because that's it, this is entirely uh, about the chief and his past. Fantastic. Now, for a moment there, and viewers, if you're watching this on the YouTube version, you'll see Lisa's, her eyes sort of darted up when she said Chief arrived in book four. That's incredible, (laughs) incredible recall, Lisa. How are you keeping track of a I'm always fascinated with uh, authors with a long-running series because I'm four books into a series myself and already I'm struggling to keep track of my own stuff. How do you keep keep track of of, uh, such a long-running series? It's not easy. I I believe around book five or six, I actually hired someone to write me a series Bible. Right. Uh, and her name is Claire Milto. And she, so now what happens is, is every time I write a new book, I send her a copy. She reads it. She adds things to the Bible. And, and it's just a Word document that we send back and forth. And I have that open whenever I'm writing a new book. Right. Um, so, and I also have a separate document that is just the JQ timeline. So, it's when things happen, who came in when, and uh, I was just looking at that yesterday. That's why I remember <laughs> which book the chief uh, showed up in for the first time. But it's very difficult. It's I, you have to have something, and and the Bible works for me. So, does that ever inspire ideas? Do you get, do you go sort of trawling through it and figure, oh, actually, we haven't seen this character in a while, and there's some great story potential there. Does that that ever happen? It does happen. And a lot of times I will say to my editor, you know, we have this character here who's who's been in the series for a while, but they're very underutilized. I think we could do something with them or bring them in. A lot of times I'll ask my readers on social media, who is a character that you would like to see come back or who is a character that you want to know more about? And, and they're just happy to tell me <laughs> who they want to see again and, and whose backstory they want to know about and, and that sort of thing. So I, I absolutely do use it in that way. Fantastic. It's great that you've got that relationship with your readers as well, that uh, that, that you're sort of having this engagement with them where you you can sort of almost give them ownership of the story. It's kind of saying, where are we going to steer the ship next? Do you ever get any crazy outlandish ideas that you think, okay, we're not going to go there? Or are they all on board? Are they all, all kind of pushing in the same direction? They're on board. They're on board. And I'll tell you what, my readers are very, very smart. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of twists and turns that when I'm writing it, I, I think to myself, I don't know if this is going to make sense to anyone but me. Um, and then my editor will say, no, this is good stuff. And and I'm like, I don't, I don't know. You know, it was confusing to write it. It might be confusing to read it, uh, but they're right there. They're right there with me. And they, 
um, they will go with just about any crazy outlandish idea I come up with. They're they're there for it. I mean, they're just the best. <laughs> That's a it's a great lesson to learn, isn't it? I think too often we can underestimate the reader and feel that we maybe have to hammer home something. We make the we you know we put the idea on the page, and then maybe even in the same paragraph or a few pages down, we reinforce it. And it's like a lot of readers' feedback. You get no, no, we get it, we get it. You only have to tell us once. That's an important lesson to learn, isn't it? It is. It is. They're very smart and very savvy. And you know, most of my readers have been reading in the genre for quite a while, so you mm. really have to work hard to. Uh, provide them with a story that is going to keep them engaged and keep them guessing. Mm. Um, I know as a reader myself, you know, I'm disappointed if I'm into the first chapter and I'm already like, Oh, I kind of know what's going to happen here. So I don't ever want to do that. I want to bring them something fresh and original and twisty each time. Fantastic. Well, Talking about fresh and original and twisty. I mean, let's go back to the, the origins of this series, book one, vanishing girls, Came in 2018, and listeners, we're recording this in the spring of 2022. We're up to book 14. That's an incredible run. Uh, As I understand it, the series started with a three-book contract. Did you ever think in just, you know, four years or so, you'd you'd still be writing this series and still taking Josie on these these new adventures? No, (laughs) not at all. Not even for a second. I actually was talking to my husband last night. It's like, I can't believe that this is real, that I'm still getting to write this series. If you had told me this five years ago, which is which was before the first book had come out and when I was in talks with Book Ocher, my publisher, to um, write the series and launch the series, I would not have believed it, not even for a second. And I, I say all the time that those first three books, there's a pretty complete story arc across the three of them mm-hmm. because I only had a three book contract. And I thought for sure that the books would tank and I would be out of contract <laughs> and, and have to start over somewhere else or with some new characters. So I thought, well, if I if I only get to write three books, let me make them the, the arc very complete. Uh-huh. So it's just beyond my my wildest imaginings that that I would be here now with book 14. Did that did that create any problems? So you you know you'd be you'd be working on the third story, thinking, okay, I'm wrapping this up with a neat little bow, and book at your tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, we'd love some more. Was there a point where you're thinking, oh, nuts, I've got to I've got to you know add more to this? Was that ever a problem, or did it sort of open things up and you thought, okay, great, this is this is an opportunity? Well, I had no shortage of ideas. That that was never an issue. So that was kind of fun. I just feel like if I had known that I would get to write so many more books, I may have parsed Josie's backstory out over, over more books right. than the first three. Um, but, you know, the readers don't seem to mind. I mean, they, they're they cool with, you know, any case and, and they want to know more about other characters. So it's, it's really just been a lot of fun to get in there and, and see what else we can throw at Josie. Wait, am I right in thinking that I, I read somewhere? I think Josie might be getting close-ish to retirement age. Is that is that correct? Well, uh, a reader just asked me this yesterday. She asked me how old she is, and I went, and that's why I was in my timeline. <laughs> and so, um, in book fourteen or book book fifteen, she'll be thirty. It's it'll, it'll be book fifteen. She'll be thirty-six. Okay. Okay. So, so I think she's still got. A lot of a lot of time oh, to, to solve no. cases. Now I'm sure I saw that somewhere because it, it's something you hear. We spoke to Ian Rankin and Michael Conley, and they've they've said similar things, which is they wish they'd started the character much much younger, so they didn't have to retire them and think of ways to bring them back into the fold, to, you know, cold cases or, or whatever. So that's clearly not a problem. Cool. Uh, let's talk about where it all started for you. We we. You know, writing as a child, was it something you always wanted to do? Was it something that came later? Oh, I was writing as a child. I mean, as soon as I was able to hold a pen or a pencil, I was writing stories and poems. And um, it was just always something that was in me. Um, I used to do it as a child as a way of kind of making sense of my world and the, you know, confusing things uh, going on around me. So that's where it started. And then I just, I I always wrote and I wrote 
when I was 11 years old, I wrote my first mystery and I, it was 140,000 words Whoa. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> on an old fashioned typewriter. Oh, old wow. fashioned. It, was, it was just a typewriter then. Um, <laughs> and then in high school, I wrote four books, uh, but they didn't, you know, they were terrible and they didn't really know what they wanted to be. And um, I didn't, I still wasn't really, I mean, I was a kid, you know, I just wasn't yeah. really, I was serious about it, but I wasn't that serious. So um, then I went to college and I was doing the college thing and I still was trying to write. I had a lot of ideas that, you know, started off great, but then went nowhere and I couldn't finish anything. And then uh, it was after college. It was, I was in grad school. I decided that um, I was going to try to finish something. I just wanted to finish something. I didn't care what it was like or if it was any good or I, I didn't even really have plans to do anything with it. I just wanted to prove to myself that I could yeah. finish a book. And so I did. And I sent um, about four query letters out for that before I realized that it was really horrendous. Um, and so I put that away. It's still on a flash drive, in my nightstand. And um, <laughs> and then I, I, you know, I dabbled a little bit. And then I wrote what would later become my first published novel, Finding Claire Fletcher. Right. So, yeah, I've always been always been working at this since I was 11 years old. One of the things we, we talk a lot about in the podcast is finding your voice. And certainly very, like you, I was writing when I was younger, but I, I often tried to write like other authors because I thought that's how you write. Was there any author that you were trying to trying to sort of ape or be like or emulate that when you you were younger, or was your voice always there? I don't, I, I think it's taken me a long time to establish and find my own voice, but I, I had a lot of influences. I mean, early on, I would say Dean Koontz was a, was a huge influence. And oddly enough, the people that, or fittingly enough, I guess, the people that read my early stuff were like, this really reminds me of Dean Koontz. Wow. So, um, and then after that, I would say like Tammy Hogue, Lisa Jackson, and then, and then Karen Slaughter has probably been my biggest, mm. biggest influence. Um, and then, you know, I became completely obsessed with Dennis Lehane, Chelsea Kane, um, who am I forgetting? There was, oh, uh, Greg Hurwitz. So those were all authors that I was just really obsessed with. And I, and I tried to learn from, Yeah. and to this day, I, if you look at my reviews on Amazon, a lot of people will say that, um, you know, it reminds them of Karen Slaughter, except probably not as graphic or gory. Yes. Yeah. I have to ask about that 140,000 word book that you wrote when you're 11 what what was pitch it to us right now <laughs> um oh my goodness it so the premise was that these three orphaned girls teenage girls uh get this you know they're approached or they get a letter i can't remember exactly but basically they each individually they don't know each other they each individually find out that they um, have inherited this creepy old mansion. Um, and I don't even know where it was set, but it was set on a bay somewhere on the, probably on the East coast. And so they go, they all show up at this mansion thinking that they're the heir. And when they get there, of course, there's two other people who are like, no, we're the heirs to this. And then as they're trying to determine how they got there, are they the true heir or not, um, a, naturally a murder happens. And then, you know, there's like this crazed killer running around uh, that they have to both get away from and, you know, so they have to solve the case of who this person is and turn him into the police. And so, you know, when I was 11 and I wrote that, I was saying to myself, oh, I can't wait to be an adult so that this will be acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> That is brilliant. <laughs> it sounds amazing. It sounds really, really cool. I mean, you know, it's yeah. ever ever tempted to revisit, or is it best left in the past? I I I've looked at it, you know, over the years, 
and and it's just really terrible. But you know, now that you've made me pitch it to you, <laughs> it's a good if, idea. If I, yeah, if I took that broad premise, yeah. um, that that might be there might be something there. Oh, I really, really hope it happens, Lisa. I really, really do. <laughs> Um, take us uh, through the events that led up to the publication of your first novel, Finding Claire Fletcher, because it's always fascinating to discover how you break through with that that first novel. Oh, that was a very long, long process. Oh, um, we love a long story. <laughs> Settle down, everyone. Settle down. Enjoy. <laughs> well, I wrote it and I, I was like, oh, this might be something that people would actually read. And so I started querying for it. I almost immediately got requests for it from agents. Um, and then they all loved it, but they were like, mm, we love it, but it's just no. Right. And then I had um, a couple of agents say to me, you know, oh, I really love this, but I have some suggestions. And I said, well, that's fine. I'll revise it. And this one agent said, you know, he gave me really great suggestions. And and he kind of said to me, he actually, he did say to me, this book doesn't know what it wants to be. Right. So that's one of the things, you know, you really need to zero in on what, what you're doing here. And so I followed, there were two agents in particular. I followed their advice. I took their suggestions. I revised it, sent it back to them. They both said no. And um, one of those agents kind of kept me hanging on, you know, not, I'm undecided for two years and the other was for four years. And I kept querying and it was the same response all the time, which was that this is, this is wonderful. This is awesome. And one agent said, it's a home run. Um, but no, we're not going <laughs> to find you. <laughs> so finally I, I got an offer from an agent and that it had been four years. And at, at that point, I was like, I don't care who this person is. I don't <laughs> care what their record is. I don't, I just, I want to get this book on the road. So I said, yes. And then I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I'll be, all my friends were like on submissions for like six months and getting, you know, contracts. I was like, oh, six months from now, I'll have a book deal. And you no, know, two years later, like two dozen publishers, everyone said, no, they all loved it said no. Um, and then a very, very small press that was just, had just opened their doors. Um, I said to my agent, like, let's submit to them, you know, cause we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel by now. Um, and so we did, and they, they took it and then they published it and it did way better than anyone ever expected. But unfortunately then that publisher closed. So <laughs> just kind of hanging out there again. <laughs> so, um, I mean, that thing of you're told it's a home run and then you're rejected. Yes. Four years. Mm -hmm. What what kept you going? What kept you going through all that time? Because uh, I know a lot of I know a lot of listeners who might think four years, forget it. You know, obviously, I'm not cut out for this. I need to do something else. Right. <laughs> What yeah. what kept you coming back for more more rejection? Um, well, it's like a couple of things, and one is is just um, just I'm just a Reagan, and we're so stubborn that <laughs> like it's to the point of when it seems like absolute madness to continue, we're just like okay, give me more. <laughs> so um, my dad had this great quirky little saying, um, and he he used to say let them tell you no. Um, meaning keep, keep, keep going out there, keep throwing that book in the arena, keep doing your queries, keep stay on submissions and let, just keep letting them tell you no, because eventually someone's going to say yes. Yeah. And that was kind of my mantra and my philosophy, but you're right. I mean, there came many points where I was like, this is not clearly not going to ever happen. Um, this is just not what is meant for me. And um, I had like a really low moment after that one agent that he had started at one agency and then brought me along to his new agency as a potential client and then dumped, you know, said uh -huh. no. And I was like, I can remember um, 
you know, I put my daughter to bed. I can remember that night. And I was just like sitting there like, okay, it's time to hang this up. This isn't going to happen. And I thought to myself, you know, (laughs) when my daughter gets older, because she was just a toddler then, uh, everyone in my family is going to be like, oh, your mom, she was always writing. She wrote all the time since she was a kid. And then, you know, inevitably my daughter would come to me and say, hey, everyone's talking about you writing all the time. What happened with that? And what was I going to say to her? What, what would that conversation look like? And I was like, I'm not going to have that conversation. Not ever. Just, I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to have it. And so my focus became just not having that conversation with my kid ever, not even getting an agent or getting a book deal or having something published. It was just like, I'm not going to tell my daughter that I gave up. I'm not going to look her in the eye and say, I gave up. So that really was the moment that I was like, that's it. I'm all in. I don't care if it's crazy. I'm doing this. (laughs) That is so cool. You've, um, I think you've sold something like 3 million copies now. Uh, you know, uh, what you're, um, you know, you're an international bestseller. What does your daughter think of you now? Um, (laughs) I don't know. She's still, I mean, she thinks I'm all right, but, um, (laughs) there's no pleasing kids, is there? (laughs) No, you know, she, when she was younger, she wanted to read my books, but I was like, no, you're too young. Now she's almost 15. And I was like, well, you can read them now. And she's got like a third of the way through vanishing girls. And she was like, "Mm, I mean, it's good, but (laughs) it's just not for me. But she doesn't read murder mysteries. So, you know, I don't know if it's if it's if it was the book or if it was me or um, she's just not her taste. So don't don't worry. I can't get my kids to read my ones either. Don't worry. There's quite a lot of authors in the same boat, actually. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never be cool in the teenager's eyes. No, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, you mentioned something earlier about the, your editor, and I read somewhere, I think, that you have this great relationship with your editor where you draft, before you start a draft, you send the idea to your editor and you sort of develop the idea with them. Ultimately, of yeah. course, you make all the decisions, but which is, I think, is fairly unusual. Uh, tell us tell us how that came about and, and is it something you still do with every book? I do. And, I, you know, for me, it's because my schedule is so quick and and um, demanding that for me it really just started out as a time saving thing which is I don't want to spend you know three months on this and 90,000 words if if you're not gonna approve it or if I'm gonna end up having to rewrite the entire thing so um, it's just it's a lot more efficient for me to um, pitch her the idea or for us to kind of uh, we have a document that we pass back and forth that has a whole bunch of ideas and we just kind of look at them and say, okay, here's where we are in the series. What, what do we think would be great to do next? What would the readers like? And then, you know, we'll land on something and I'll start outlining, maybe write a first chapter and, and then send it to her. And, you know, she'll say to me, you know, I like this, I don't like this or, I think this will work or this won't work or, and then it just saves time Mm -hmm. in the, in the process. I mean, if I was taking two years to write one book, I would probably not need to do that, but um, it saves time. And also, you know, she's just brilliant. I mean, she's just (laughs) fabulously, amazingly brilliant. And she always just with a little one liner or just a question will um, kind of open things up for me in a way that I hadn't thought of them before. Mm. So she really helps me get the ideas flowing uh, with each book. You have this incredibly prolific output and looking at your reviews online, people that are loving every book. They're loving that, that you, you, know, you keep the thrills and the twists and the pace coming. What's your routine like? How how are you keeping up that that productivity? What's a what's a day in the life of of Lisa Reagan? Well, I have to say that <laughs> my husband contributes a lot to 
me being able to be this productive because um, I don't have like a regular daily schedule. I, I, I try to, but it inevitably doesn't work out at doctor's appointment or, um, you know, something happens that I, that I can't stick to it. So my schedule is basically, I'm writing almost all the time if I have a, a spare moment. Um, and then I would say the last six weeks to a month before a deadline, like you won't see me at all. I'll just be writing pretty constantly. Um, but he, he always says that he's the, um, Alfred to my Batman because <laughs> he, he just, and it's true. He takes care of everything. He runs the household. He takes, you know, he kind of like runs interference so that I don't have to worry about anything except writing and, and working on the next book. So he, I mean, he makes, he just kind of comes in here and slides food across the <laughs> desk. And, I and then I, I, you know, and then he comes back later and quietly takes away the empty plate and, um, you know, he'll make sure that, you know, he handles everything with my daughter. So I don't, you know, when, if I, if I'm really on a, on a, you know, monster deadline, then, you know, I, he can deal with school and homework and all that stuff. And I'll just, I'll just work. So, um, you know, really it's just, it's that. And it's a lot of like, um, I don't know if you can see, I have, he made me this, I have this thermometer, um, oh, yeah. <laughs> in my office, it's for my word count. So every time I start a new book, we put it down um, to zero. And then um, every day that I work on the book, if I get a thousand words and I just push it up to the next thousand and my goal is, you know, usually between 80 and thousand, 80 and 90,000 words. That's and so, so everyone in my family can come in and look at this and see exactly where I, where I am in the book. And, um, you know, that's then they such, know whether or not to bother me. <laughs> that's such a good idea. So for, for listeners who, who aren't watching on YouTube, this is like, you know, when you have a charity fundraising thing and you have that, charity thermometer uh it's one of those and oh you're quite near the top to this one yeah that was just yeah. for book 15 yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was such a great idea that's brilliant well i would ask lisa what's coming next but i guess it's it's book 15 isn't it it's yeah. <laughs> uh and uh and i'm guessing josie quinn is going to be having plenty of adventures for for some time or, or are there plans to take a break do something a bit different Right now, um, I'm contracted for a total of 20 books. And as long as the readers keep reading and clamoring for Josie, then that's those will be Josie Quinn books. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, long may that happen. Um, Lisa, it's been a real joy speaking to you today. Thank you so much. And uh, folks, uh, Watch Her Disappear is the new Josie Quinn. Or just start, you know, start right at the beginning with Vanishing Girls uh, and, and burn through them all and have a great time. Lisa, thanks so much for this. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you. What a fantastic interview. And you know what I love about that? Lisa talking about how she involves her fans in the creation of some of her books. The idea of, I mean, I guess there's a luxury, isn't there? When you've written 15 novels, there's a luxury of being able to say, yeah, which yeah. characters would you like to, would you like me to bring back in? And it's interesting is every, I think every um, author is quite often quite surprised by some bit part characters that people fall in love with and and want more of and I, I think it's brilliant that lisa actually kind of puts the word out there and says you know tell me which which characters should i should i bring back in and and oftentimes they can become major characters in, within the actual series itself yeah that's all part of cultivating a readership of of giving people a kind of an ownership of a series which is one of those things that fosters word of mouth which is that thing you can't really buy, you know? Uh, and I, I think part of the the secret to Lisa's success is that people feel like they're part of a community, uh, part of something that's their, you know, their thing. But when it's your thing, you know, it's like when you find a favourite band, you find a favourite author, you find a brand new TV show, you want to tell people about it. You know, you want to be the first one to tell them because that makes you one of the cool kids. So, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great thing to do. It, you know, obviously, if you're two or three books into a series that's going to be quite tricky to do but when you're sort of you know 14 15 books into a series then then suddenly you've got a little army there that you can mobilize well completely and i think too many people 
do get hung up. We've talked a lot about this on the podcast over the many years, but we, we've talked a lot about how people get really paralyzed by this idea of having to market themselves as an author, having to market their books. And it's a really good way to think about a different approach. Is it, yes, obviously the word marketing is an important, a very important word, but actually ultimately the longevity of an author's career is about building a fan base and building a community of fans around yeah. them as an author and their books. And if you think about it more as building a community, that feels a lot more family-like than marketing, which a lot of people think of um, trying to sell yeah. to people. And really all you ever have to do ultimately is, um, is kind of convince that person wants to try your book. And once they tried it and they love it and they're kind of all in and part of the community, um, you don't have to sell to them again. You just have to keep writing more great books that they will love and they'll buy. And more importantly, tell other people about. And, and they become, in fact, your greatest fans become your, your major marketing machine. If you do it right, they're the ones that bring the new fans in. So yeah, I think it's a really good reminder to us all that it's about building a community of fans. Yeah, yeah, because marketing is kind of aggressive and pushy. It's essentially someone going, Oi, you, over there, look at this. You might like this thing. No, don't look away. Look at this thing over here. Do I have to drag you by the ear? Oh, you know, it's quite aggressive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but whereas if you have a, a, a community? So it's one of the reasons why uh, my Witches of Woodville newsletter, it's not technically written by me. It's written by the village librarian. So she can talk to them like she's one of the readers. And of course, it's actually really me writing it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it has that sort of fun uh, tone to it as if to say she's saying, look, I'm just like one of you. I'm reading these books, you know, uh, and, and here's I, but I've got the, the secret sort of insider skinny on what's going on. So, yeah, that, that idea of community is, um, is really, really powerful, I think. And you realise you've just broken the hearts of thousands of readers and listeners who <laughs> thought all along there was some librarian out there in my field. But anyway, we'll keep that to ourselves. The other thing that I thought was fascinating was the fact that, I mean, I'd never heard this before, never heard this before. Writing 140,000 words for your first yeah. book at age 11. That's insane. I mean, there's people that are listening who think, it's I've brilliant. never written 140,000 words, you know, full stop. Yeah, and what did she say? I can't wait until I'm an adult when this will be acceptable. Oh, I love it. Fantastic. Someone Absolutely. way, way ahead of their time there. Uh, but isn't that amazing? Yeah, I mean, have you ever yeah. heard that? Have you ever heard of a prolific writer who started at that kind of age and wrote that level of, of words? No, I mean, I, I was writing at that age, but uh, it was mostly short crap. Um, frankly, <laughs> you know, but this is the thing. The thing is, though, I don't. I don't. What Lisa has done is amazing, but we should make it very clear: it's not the norm, you know. And I know we've yeah, got lots completely. of people in the academy, people in the BXP. And we've got listeners who are maybe in their fifties and sixties, and they're just starting out, and they might hear this and think, "Oh God, should I've started when I was eleven? What can I do? There's, you know, yeah. do I need a time machine? You know." Mm. So don't, don't, you know, you can't. You you have to well you'll know this Mr D I mean runners are taught the thing that they're taught is you you're taught to run your own race you can't you know run someone else's race for them you got to run your own race and you know you you do it at your own pace and your own speed I was at the RNA the Romantic Novelists Association uh, conference uh, a couple of weeks ago and at the dinner the evening dinner I was sat next to a woman in her eighties called Hilary Ford Chalkley and we got chatting. And uh, she was telling me how she got uh, an MA in creative writing from Kingston University in London. She got a master's uh, at the age of 82. Brilliant. Uh, and, she, and she was telling me about her series that she – and she wants this to be a long-running series as well. And her husband, Sid, he's come out of retirement to help her. I'll put a link in the show notes to a news story about this, folks, so you can check it out. And just chatting to Hillary was really, really inspirational, 82 – and she, far as she's concerned, she was just getting started. And, you know, I know people in the 40s, 50s, 60s might be listening and thinking, oh, God, I didn't start when I was 11. Does that mean I, I, I should give up? No, 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 no. Run your own race. Take, take it at your own pace, people. Yeah, and also we, it's, it's, a very, it's a very interesting thing, writing. If you think about other types of um, careers or activities that we do, like, like take, take a sport, for example. Um, if I tried to learn say, I don't know, I'll just pick something random like curling today for the first time. Mm -hmm. it, I, it would take me time to become an expert in it. 
But the thing about writing is you don't start writing at 80. You don't start writing at 50. We've been writing since the very first day we were given that massive fat pencil. Do you remember those really big pencils we got in like, you know, yeah, kindergarten? Yeah, yeah. No, we started writing. So we, it's, it's just that we are redirecting our writing maybe towards starting a story or even starting a nonfiction book. And all of the emails, the texts, uh, even all the conversations, all the films you've watched, all the books you've read, it's all part of the, in quotes, kind of training and so actually somebody who starts when they're 82 has probably got the most incredible, like you know, nearly 80 decades of experience in that. Um, I think that the, the thing that we have to learn, which is obviously why we do what we do and we have the academy, is that there's a certain craft which we learn, but that's, that, could, that can be learned. And the, the faster and deeper you go into that, the quicker you pick up those things which can help improve your writing. Um, so yeah, people shouldn't feel downtrodden and also, there's this great Chinese proverb, Mark. I actually read it this morning, weirdly enough, and it said, the great time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second best time to plant a tree is today, <laughs> right? So it's really important mm. to remember that, you know, today's <laughs> all we've got moving forwards. You know, we always only have the now. So if you're thinking about starting writing, um, Coach Mark says, start right now. In fact, you know, pause this podcast and write the first sentence of your new book, send us that sentence and then we'll celebrate the fact that you've started your book. <laughs> yeah, let's have it. Brilliant stuff. And, now, and then what they can do, what they can do, what they can do is they can put it on their thermometer for word count. Oh, Isn't that brilliant? I love it. I tell you what, I'm when I heard slightly that, annoyed. I'm slightly, we should have thought of that first. Yeah, I'm annoyed we didn't, th and brand you, it, and the best, you know. Do you know the first thing I did? The first thing I did, Mark, when I heard that, I paused the interview and I went onto Amazon and I typed in writing thermometer, and there was no. I got thousands of like medical. If anyone's, if anyone's doing it right now, don't bother because you get all the medical thermometers and things like that. But yeah, I, I absolutely think that's a brilliant idea. Anything visual, anything visual, anything large as well something that, that that sticks out like the fact that her family could walk in the room and go oh great mum's mum's cracked off another couple of thousand words this week um you know or, or just just to share in that visual celebration of getting towards that that end point so so mm. important and actually um we did a whole thing about the 10 reasons why people don't write on the uh, life coaching in the academy last week right and what was interesting is one of the things on that list was people aren't tracking they have no way of tracking their progress or they haven't even decided on their word count from the outset so they can't even use a thermometer because they don't even know well how long is it going to be i don't know it's so important to do these things and having something to track is is fantastic mm. now so this is why I, do, I still do the 200 word a day challenge because i get a feeling of accomplishment and i haven't missed a day this year wow writing every day since jan 1st so you that's know. amazing Absolutely and it's interesting brilliant. i'm I'm writing between thirty and 50,000 words a month. So the variation is is kind of big depending on what project I'm working on. I tend to write fewer words when I'm writing screenplays, of course. So, um, But, you know, it's all adding up. It's all adding up. And I finished the, a very rough and ratty first draft of um, Woodville number four the other day. So, you know, that's uh, I started that in January. So that, that took about six months, you know. Well, so, 30 yeah, to 50,000 words a month on average if you took that that's that's half a million words a year that's mm. that's racking it up mister i mean that is that is pretty bonkers in terms of like output per year and it's you know, i, I need the money <laughs> well, but it's it's incredible though isn't it isn't it i mean if someone had told you say 20 years ago you'd be writing half a million words a year would you have believed them um probably not i was quite lazy then <laughs> My work ethic, I mean, if you, you know, uh, people who knew me, I, I scraped through my air levels by the skin of my teeth, basically. So uh, I, I've, I've managed to develop a, a work ethic, but funnily enough, since I started this podcast. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, not 20 years ago, maybe a couple of years ago, but yeah. yeah no. Brilliant stuff. Now, <laughs> one thing that really jumped out for me in Lisa's interview was her story about her daughter and how <laughs> the thing... We'll get to the family reading books thing in a minute because we have to get to that. But the thing that really, really hit home for me was this idea that when she was on the verge of giving up, it wasn't her own thoughts around her own life 
that kept her going. It wasn't like, you know, oh, I've got to do this. I've got, you know, I've made this promise to myself. It became about not being able to tell or her daughter, you know, having a conversation in years down the road of, of not, of turning around and not saying to her, I gave up, I gave up writing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think this is one of the most powerful things that we can do as an author is think about, and this is what we've talked about again on the Academy and the podcast for years. Writing is not just, it's not just about our own pursuit. Um, I mean, in itself, it's an, it's in a lifetime pursuit. It's an incredible thing to, to, to do, but it's actually what we do to inspire others by following our passion and writing and writing and never giving up. And the fact that it ties in, I, I know this is so true for, for parents, is that thinking about your kids and how you inspire your kids through your actions and not your words, that that was the thing that kept, kept Lisa going and look where she is now. And I kind of want to know the story in five, 10 years time when, when we hear about how her daughter reflects on what she learned through her mum and how, she, how maybe her daughter chose her passion. It might not be writing, but it might be something else, but didn't give up in that pursuit because of the fact her mum kept going and, and demonstrated to her, you know, as a role model, how important it is to never give up. For me, that is such an important thing. Yeah, you, you learn quite early on as a parent that pretty much everything you do shapes your the way particularly when they're very young <laughs> yeah. you know if you if you see a spider and scream at a spider they will scream at a spider and then you might inflict arachnophobia upon them you know that kind of thing uh so you know you learn very soon that um you know you have to set an example as a parent and uh you know it's interesting my daughter is writing and i've got a draft of her novel that i've got to read and give her notes on you know uh yeah um, so it's interesting to see that she's, she's got into the habit, you know, she's creating worlds and writing every day and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, Claire has a book that I, again, I've got to give us, they, they, they both finished books at roughly the same time. So I've got given them notes on, on their books. Um, so, so yeah, it's, uh, it's clearly rubbing off, but yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and what I thought was lovely as well is that Lisa's own father had this great saying, which is let them tell you no. You know, because eventually someone's going to say yes. And I think, you know, you've got to have a very healthy attitude to rejection and the naysayers and the people who don't believe you. So, uh, you know, there's there's an awful lot of self-belief needed in this game as well. Absolutely. And if anyone is a subscriber to the Bestseller Experiment podcast, you, you will know that we, we pick a, a line from the interview to use as the kind of headline um, subject on the email. I think that might be the subject of that email because <laughs> I love yep. that quote. Yep, I yep, absolutely yep. love that quote. And, it, and, it's, and it's so important, isn't it? It's so important to remember. And we do tell everyone, you know, every rejection letter you get um, is a badge of honor. Put it up there and feel proud of the fact mm. that you went through that process. You got rejected because you're one, one step closer to getting a yes. So it's really important to remember that. And again, Lisa showed up here, you know, to inspire us all and, and remind us that it's absolutely possible. And this is someone who could have given up. Now, let, let's just let's just touch on this subject again because it always makes me laugh when I hear this, but it's so common now, isn't it? Family members and books, <laughs> books mm. that you've written. It's so true though, isn't it? There is just no... I mean, how does it, what's going on there? What do you think is going on there? I think, I think it's that classic kind of saying, I don't want to kind of make this sound too kind of like overly pompous, but it's like a prophet is never recognized in their own town, right? It's like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, can you imagine if I like, I'll get up one morning in sandals and uh, a long, you know, robe and tell the kids I'm a prophet. Yeah, they'll be nailing me to a cross by lunchtime. No, but it's, but it's but it's but it's but it's that concept of it's that concept of um you know you told that story a couple of weeks ago about you know um somebody's telling you about how much they were loving your books and you, you were kind of like feeling a bit kind of almost like slightly uncomfortable with all yeah, the praise yeah, yeah. that you're getting yeah. but but then in your house it's like you, you're just your dad aren't you you're just your dad your yes, your, your hubby yes. and and there's also i mean just 
being here demystifies, you know, because a lot of people from the outside looking in, when they see, they only see the finished book, which has been edited and, you know, yada, 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 and it's gone through the whole process. And, you know, if you pick up your favorite, if you, you know, pick up Lisa's books and you read them and it's terrific and you think, Lisa's great. She, you know, plucks these stories out of thin air, which is what a lot of people think happens, you know. Whereas my kids kind of know how the sausage is made, both for books and for film, you know, yeah. so there, there's, um, there's a, there's a kind of, yeah, well, it's what dad does, you know, yeah. it's what he does. He sits there yeah. and makes stuff up and then sporadically gets paid for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's a, it's a really important reminder to everyone because I think we have this, we still fall for this idea that, you know, we expect to get like full support from family members. And, and it is a very common thing that we have come up um actually again even in the academy this i mean it's crazy all the times but one of the academy members was talking about how um you know they they they, they have this guilt around writing they have a guilt when they yeah. go off and they spend an hour writing when they think they should be spending time with their spouse or spending time with their kids mm. and and obviously it's all about balance i mean you, you it's you know we heard how um you know lisa has to go to complete extremes to finish her books you know, and almost almost be cut off from family life for a period of time whilst she can finish, and that's that's kind of long term. That's not healthy. I mean, that's not, but but if it's only sporadically and and she's got the support of the family, which she has, then then it's doable. But for yeah. a lot of people out there, they don't have any support from family, and they get the classic. Well, are you, are you still working on that book? You're still trying to knock out? Go get a proper job. You know, all mm. the classic stereotypes and tropes that we hear. But um, I think it's important as a writer just to get beyond that and just accept that that's the norm it's and it's okay it's okay to um you know it's okay to feel sad or disappointed if a family member hasn't read your book or isn't interested in your book project but there's a lot of people out there that will be and you know you have to push through that yeah we um you may recall a few weeks ago we had saray walker on the show and she was talking about claiming that time for yourself mm. and it is important and we've had people on here who have you know, families, they have work, they have uh, they have to care for people, but they can still find that Pomodoro 20 minutes where they can do a little bit every day, and it is important. I mean, I you know, I'm speaking from a position of privilege, and I've been very lucky. And also, my kids are grown up. My wife's known me for 30 years. They don't, you know, they're not interested in me anymore. Uh, the novel is worn off, you know, so they just let me get on with it. Yeah. Um, so there's that. But... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, as as Sarai said, uh, Sarai rather uh, said a few weeks ago, claim claim that little bit of time for yourself and yeah. uh, make sure you do that. Yeah. Now the other thing um, that I thought that I thought was really interesting, we've we've now found the male equivalent to Julie. For to anyone, Julie, yes. From anyone yes. listening back, now what was the episode mark where it was find your Julie? Yes, well, that was uh, Angela Marsons. Angela Marsons, uh, and we've, yeah. We've had two episodes of Angela, and Julie is her partner, and there she Julie just helps Angela do her thing, uh, as with uh, Lisa's husband. Yeah, you know, uh, takes care of all their all the day to day stuff, so they can focus on the writing, and that's that's wonderful. If you can so, find someone like that, cling so on if, to them. <laughs> if you, so, the t shirt now is the t shirt now is if you have a female spouse, it's find your Julie. And if you have a male spouse, it's find your Alfred. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant. But no, I mean, that's, that's absolutely huge. And I think it's, uh, you know, so um, it's, it's wonderful to have somebody so supportive and obviously loving what, you know, what Lisa's doing. Um, I think it's incredible to, to, to see, but to see that level of support is fantastic. Um, and I like the way she talks about how her husband kind of runs interference. <laughs> yes, like, that's great a great phrase, term, isn't it? It's, it's a, a really good phrase. term. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. what about developing ideas with an editor? Because that's something which I haven't heard much on the podcast. That's quite a novel thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's it's always done to a certain level, I think, because editors like to know what's coming. So, I mean, certainly when you first pitch to an agent or an editor, especially if you're writing a series, you would generally say, okay, this is what I think book, say if you're pitching a trilogy, here's book one, two, and three. Here's what happens in those. And it might just be a paragraph for each one. It might be more. Um, uh, But 
if you're lucky enough, like Lisa, who's contracted for 20 books, I mean, book sure, they don't muck about with their book deals today. Oh, I know, they? right. I mean, Angela, it you know, it's a 12-book deal, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if you, I, I think if you've got that long-term relationship, then it makes complete sense to sit down and say, okay, here's the next two or three books, and maybe there's a mini arc, or maybe there's something you want to do, or maybe there's, I mean, you know, the, the most successful media organization in the world does it. Just a, a little while ago, we had Marvel telling us what they're putting out for the next bloody five years or so, you know, so they've got that big diagram that says, okay, here's the next Black Panther movie, here's the, the She-Hulk TV show, all of these things are laid out. So uh, they they do it partly for the fans, but they also do it for their investors, so the investors can go, oh, okay, that's a great lineup. I shall keep investing in Disney mm. and Marvel and all that kind of thing. And in a, in a similar mm -hmm. way, you're doing that with your publisher. You're saying, okay, so for the next two books, what do we... So when I got the, the two-book deal with Simon Schuster to continue The Witches of Woodville, uh, I had to pitch what the next two books are going to be about and give them an idea of where they're going. And, and that definitely helped, you know, focus the mind on, on where we were going next. It definitely helped me get that deal. And I know that, you know, I, when I sit down with my editor, we talk about what she, you know, she, she would say, you know, I really enjoyed this and that book and I really enjoyed this. So let's make sure you don't lose any of that. You know, she doesn't want me going off course and doing something that's going to, you know, spoil the brew um, or, or, you know, screw up the formula. Uh, yeah. And it's, know, important, so it's, it's, it's important to have this kind of sense of pipeline. I mean, that's the kind of term that, that comes to mind for me. It's just like what's coming down the pipeline. And it also helps focus you on your own direction because the longer you've got ahead of time to think about it, the more you can roll into it rather than getting to a place in your kind of writing career where you're thinking, right, I've done that book. Oh, what do I do next? And then What's you can, next? Yeah, 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 you can be a bit yeah. stuck and you can actually have the momentum can just kind of stop dead at that point. And then that can be hard then to get going, right? Again, yeah. so I do like that idea. And there will be people listening. To, I mean, I use the word formula and you use the word pipeline, which sounds horrible <laughs> and kind of, oh, it's formulaic. You're just churning out the same thing again and again. But the thing is, you... When you're when I'm doing my day-to-day -day, right, I'm not thinking about that. But when I'm pitching, when I'm doing the business side of things, you have to think like that because it's a business. Yeah. You know, uh, if, get in that the Witches of Woodville stories have a certain tone. And I've got and this has become absolutely clear with, with a third book. The reviews have been absolutely amazing because people know the characters now. They know the characters, they know the world, and they're saying to me, oh, it's wonderful to come back. And I've liked this, 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 and this. So I I I can't help but think great they like that i need to give them more of that mm -hmm. you know the same but different yeah not the same thing over and over again but you know so they've told me that they love Faye and they love the relationship between Faye and bertie okay great so in the next book let's let's do a bit more on that so you you can't help but think okay you know the the, the people who read this stuff really enjoy these elements i can surprise them with other elements as well but i'm not going to suddenly you know not have that in the next book or you know if you make a big tonal shift or you suddenly set it in a new place or jump forward 20 years, you know, that mm. those things that if you're answerable to no one kind of, uh, you know, you could maybe try, but I now have a readership. And again, we get, goes back to what we we're saying at the beginning about a community, building yeah. a community of readers, that community has expectations. Now you shouldn't dance to their tune, but you should be aware there will be expectations. So it's, it's a really, really tricky balance. To, and I think this is why you're starting to see divisions and fandoms, you know, with Star Wars and Doctor Who and stuff like that, where old school people sort of can get a bit, you know, poisonous in their opinions of, of what these shows should be like because they have they feel like they have a, a longer term ownership of them mm. so you see it with rock bands as well it's like well did you listen to their early stuff you didn't just you know <laughs> if you're a pink floyd fan if you you know did you listen to piper at the gates of dawn though no you didn't well actually you're not a real fan then actually you know that kind of nonsense so just let people enjoy the things they enjoy but as a, as a creator there is a balance to be had in, you know, you've got to develop new and exciting and thrilling stuff, but you've also got to deliver the stuff that they love. Yeah. And, and it, that's, that's the thrill and the curse of it. It is. And, and for, for many authors who struggle, especially those that think, you know, if I'm going down the indie route, I don't have the accountability of a traditional author, give me a deadline to finish my book where well, your accountability becomes your reader readers, your accountability 
comes, you know, mm. keeping delivering things that they will love and keep on raving about. So yeah, it's it's a it's a great it's a great kind of relationship there between the two. Excellent stuff. Well, Lisa, Lisa absolutely is inspired many many people i'm sure today thank you lisa for all the time you gave us and we hope we hope as well listening to her interview and the kind of the post chat around it that that you feel inspired if there's anything that's inspired you about the interview please drop us a note let us know uh what yeah. inspired you did you get a light bulb moment which you think yeah i'm going to do this or i'm going to do that or maybe you gave up and you thought about your kids and maybe you might reverse that decision now. We want to hear about that as well because those moments are absolutely fantastic to hear about as well. So, Mr. Stay, what's happening on social media this week? Okay, well, look, you folks, if you've been following the podcast this year, you'll know that uh, our long-term support of the podcast over on, the, over on Patreon on the Best Sell Experiment Facebook group, Andrew Chapman, he wrote a novel in a day. And it's called The Mask Collector. And if you want to learn more about this, we did an interview with Andrew, a special interview, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can discover all about it. Well, by the time this podcast goes live uh, on, yes, so on Sunday 31st, so this comes out on the Monday, the 1st of August. uh, So 31st of July, 2022, The Mask Collector will be released so his book which he wrote in a day has been edited it's gone through the whole process the pitch is a bank heist goes wrong when one of the hostages turns out to be a wanted serial killer it's terrific so andrew fantastic news congratulations on that if you've read it send him a review give him those stars pilot on let's hope that he gets some sort of you know bestseller flag or a bunch of great reviews but andrew we salute you sir that's an amazing achievement um, absolutely amazing stuff brilliant stuff andrew congratulations and congratulations to the fact that he entered the pre-release charts in between two of his favorite novelists stephen king and stephen yeah. king <laughs> do you remember that <laughs> yeah i do so I absolutely do. fantastic yeah brilliant can't wait to hear how all that goes and over on the Academy, uh, we've got Elizabeth Grover with some great news. Now, I had a wonderful one-to-one with Elizabeth on the Academy, and she's talking about her forthcoming books and the social media and a website and a newsletter. She's got a wonderful dog, and she's, she's training the dog to unbox her books for her. I've told her she's basically going to break the internet when this goes live. So when this goes live, we are going to be pushing it out there everywhere. Brace yourself. But anyway... Uh, Elizabeth had two wins uh, this week. She said first she's going to have the final galley proofs of her book One Little Lie uh, with a release date soon to follow. And she's received a contract for her book Touch and Go, which will hopefully both of them will be out later this year, 2022. Elizabeth, we salute you on that. And we can't wait until this all goes live and gets people really excited. Absolutely brilliant. Yeah. And, and Elizabeth's wonderful. She's, oh, she's, she's always amazing. there as a coach. <laughs> she's always just phenomenal. She's just terrific. We love Very her to inspiring. bits. We love her to bits. It's terrific. So, folks, look, if you want to get in touch, uh, drop us a line. You can find us on social media. We're uh, Bestseller Experiment on Facebook and uh, at Bestseller XP on Twitter and Instagram. Or just go to the website, bestsellerexperiment.com. Uh, there's a contact tab there and you can drop us a line there. Brilliant. And if you'd like to get the weekly bestseller experiment newsletter where you find out about our current interview, what you'll learn from it and who's possibly coming up next. We've got some big names, folks, coming up in the next couple of months. Um, Pop over to the uh, bestsellerexperiment.com website and click on the newsletter tab. And if you would like to get the writing habit of a lifetime, don't forget the 200 word challenge. That's 200 words a day. It's a free challenge that we've set up to help you make the habit of a lifetime in writing. It absolutely works, folks. We've had such an incredible amount of people on this uh, so pop along to 200wordchallenge.com and finally we should mention that if you want to become part of the bestseller academy all these amazing stories of successful authors coming out of it come on over to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com get your name on the wait list to find out about the opening this september so mr stay i hope you have a fantastic week um you too and yeah enjoy it and uh, I'm going to go and get a nice cool iced drink of water to <laughs> for my milk and uh, yeah so wishing everyone else an amazing amazing writing week this week keep going don't give up folks and if you have there's always a chance to restart as well so all the best and it's a goodbye from Mark 1 and a goodbye from Mark 2 Tatty bye <laughs>